Well, it is our 10th anniversary, I think almost to the day. Um, so this time last year, uh, we began Christ the King with a, a much more modest size of body, but the same confidence that the Lord was behind his church. Uh, and uh, we've had a great celebration. It's my pleasure to introduce John Yates. I know he doesn't require an introduction for many of you, but uh, John Yates is the rector of the Falls Church. He and his wife Susan have just had a phenomenal impact uh, for their long service to that church and and before. I was thinking that uh, for any average pastor, the birth of a church, and Christ the King was uh, birthed out of the Falls Church, birthing one church would be a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, accomplishment. If I had that at the end of my service, I would think, wow, that would be a full ministry. But the remarkable thing about John and Susan is that Christ the King, this parish, is only one example of really many, countless uh, ministries and churches that have grown up and been birthed through their ministry. So Susan and John, thank you for being with us as we celebrate 10 years together. I didn't really realize, I just didn't anticipate that I'd be feeling a little emotional this morning sitting out uh, with you and uh, just uh, seeing how those few little seeds that we planted down here 10 years ago have sprouted up into something so significant. It is great for me and Susan to be here with you. And... um, We smile when we think about you all, which is often. Uh, Many of you, of course, we know from uh, earlier days, and we have happy memories of you and and how you stepped out in faith to establish Christ the King. Uh, We smile also because of David and Jennifer. We just smile whenever we think of David and Jennifer and the family. Uh, You make us laugh. And uh, (laughs) I just this morning, Susan and I, you know, I, I said about every third person in the choir is a glade. <laughs> and uh, my, wife, my wife said, yeah, you remember in the half of our, our kids made up half the Sunday school at Falls Church back when we first came to. Uh, we've had so many happy times with glades over the years. We love them so much. We're so uh, proud of them. We just think they're absolutely the best. And uh, um, on my uh, bookshelf at home, I have a, a photograph that uh, David gave me, and it's a photo of David. And uh, he's... Uh... Yeah. All right. Jennifer gave it to me. Okay. Well, anyway, it's a photo of David, and it was taken back when he was young and foolish, and he was, uh, he was actually jumping off the roof of the old Falls Church in uh, Falls Church. He was, uh, that's about a 20-foot jump. And he was jumping from the top of the roof onto one of those big, you know, high jump pads. That was the first of his many injuries while he's <laughs> in ministry. But the really funny thing about it is across the front, it says, uh, uh, to my dear friend John Yates, all I know I learned from you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take credit for uh, uh, much of what David has learned. Um, Yeah, it was amazing. I was thinking this morning, you know, um, we we have, we've just seen God bless in amazing ways 
as we've sent out people to, to start churches. And uh, Christ the King is one of 11, if you count the Falls Church Anglican, which we also planted about the same time this church was planted. Uh, there's a Potomac Falls. There's a, a church up in Portland, Maine that we planted under Tim Clayton's leadership. There's a St. Brendan's down in uh, uh, Northeast D.C. There's you all. There's uh, the church in Arlington, Restoration. Uh, there's uh, Christ Church Vienna. There's Winchester Anglican Church. There's uh, uh, All Nations in D.C., which uh, fought a good fight for five years but has now closed. They just couldn't quite make it. Um, uh, Williamsburg, Incarnation Church in Williamsburg. And last year we started Church Anglican Church of the Redeemer down in Richmond. And so um, it's, it's just been so exciting to see what's happening. On your 10th anniversary, hard to believe, 10 years, it, it's a good time, I thought, to consider what God wants to make of us, not just in Christ the King, but in all of our churches. You've had excellent instruction on that through the years, and all I want to do today is take a look at this beautiful description of the first church and consider together for a few minutes uh, what it says to us. And I'd like, because it's just a couple of verses, I'd just like to read this again because it's so uh, powerful. We're in Acts chapter 2 uh, where we find the loveliest description of the young church. And St. Luke uh, a rigid historian tells us what life was like in that young church at the very beginning. And, and we don't find a more compelling picture anywhere of God want, what God wants his community, his church, to be like. I would cry too if I had to listen to an old man for a long time <laughs> on Sunday morning. <laughs> so listen, listen again. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon them, every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then over in the end of uh, chapter 4, uh, there's another just brief description there. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Not a needy person among them. This is a picture of a people who were wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and to one another. And when you hear that description, I don't know about you, but when you hear it, it seems pretty hard to believe. I remember when I first read the Sermon on the Mount, 
when I was, uh, the first time I read the Sermon on the Mount as a, a thoughtful adult, I was about 19. And I remember reading it as Luke describes what Christ has for us in Luke chapter 6. And as I read it, I just shook my head and said, well, I can't believe that. I, I, no, nobody can live like that. Jesus was just an idealist. There's no way people could live that way. I thought, it's impossible. Well, when we read that people were voluntarily sharing everything they had and that they were having favor with people in the city and that every single day outsiders were joining them and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, honestly, most of us would say, gosh, is it really possible for Christ the King to be like that? Can we make Christ the King like that? Well, it's possible, yes. But you're not going to make it like that. <laughs> And those early Christians, they weren't any different from us. They didn't make it happen either. No, it, it wasn't what they did that made it a great church. It was what was done in them and through them by God. And what was done for them that enabled them to become the most beautiful, appealing, compelling community imaginable. Now let me just explain this. I want to take you back for a bit. Uh, some of these people had actually been with Jesus. And after his resurrection, they thought, you remember, he was going to set up an earthly uh, secular kingdom and rule. But he didn't. And he told them he was going to leave them. And he wasn't going to be any longer with them in the flesh. But that he would send the Holy Spirit, the actual presence of God, to be with them and empower and God and transform them. And he actually told them, he said, it would be You'll be better off when I've left you and the Spirit of God comes. John chapter 16, he says, It is to your great advantage that I'm leaving you, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. If we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we're better off and better equipped to live the lives that God has called us to and to accomplish God's purposes better off than if Jesus himself were still here. It's hard to believe, but that's what Jesus said. And the church described in Acts 2 is what a church looks like when the Holy Spirit of God lives fully <laughs> in control and within the lives of the members. This was a church that was saturated by the presence of God. And he was tangibly at work in their midst. Now, how did it come about? Well, I think most of you know how it happened on the Jewish holiday of Pentecost in the year 34 or 35 AD. God sent his spirit among the gathered assembly of Jesus' disciples. And there was a wind and, and there was what seemed like fire and an outpouring of praise and worship uh, in many different languages. It was noisy and unexpected. You read about it in Acts 2. And thousands of people were drawn in by all that commotion. And they wanted to know what was happening. So Peter the Apostle uh, then preached his first sermon. He hadn't planned it. It was impromptu. And in it, he made three points. He said, this that's happened was predicted long ago by the prophets. They, they wrote about this. And then he said, secondly, God has come among us in the presence of his Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, he said, Jesus of Nazareth told us that this would happen. And then he proclaimed to them who Jesus was. He reminded them of the miracles and the teachings 
that God did through him and that even though he had come from God, God allowed him to be murdered on a cross. And then he told them that God had raised Jesus from the dead and that even death couldn't hold the Son of God and that to those who put their faith in Jesus, God would give the gift of life after death, eternal life. There must have been something extraordinarily powerful in Peter's words because the people not only accepted what Peter said, but they, they, the thousands of them who came and they said, what, what should we do about this? And his answer was straightforward and clear. He said, believe for yourself in Jesus as the Son of God. Turn from pursuing any other pathways to follow him in his way. And join us here as his people who love him and follow him. And if they would take these steps of faith, he said, they too would be filled with the Spirit of God. They did, and they were. And this was then the first church, 3,000 people who knew very little about the Lord, but had committed themselves to follow him and to be publicly known as his people. Gosh, they were mightily changed. And over the next few years, this group became the most, honestly, it became the most unified, most compelling the most attractive and appealing community the world has ever seen. But it wasn't because they were all so strikingly wonderful. No, it was because the Holy Spirit had come and brought all the gifts of wisdom and faith and generosity and patience and kindness and teaching and leadership, the fruits of the Spirit, joy and peace, that these people were able to live in all that Jesus had promised. Did it, did it happen instantaneously? No, I don't think so. I, I think it took time. And we learn in that reading that there were three practices that enabled them to become such a powerful community. One, they came together continually. They had meals together, fellowship together. In twos and threes, in small groups, they came together in large groups. They came together a lot. And secondly, they were taught the teaching of Jesus by those who had been with him. And then thirdly, they prayed and they worshipped in the temple and in their homes and in all sorts of different places. So in other words, they, were, they, weren't, they weren't only filled with the Spirit of God, but they were wholeheartedly devoted to one another and to knowing God as deeply as they could. They listened to the teachings of what Jesus had promised and commanded and they believed and obeyed. Honestly, it was as simple as that. And as time went by, three unexpected things began to become evident among them. One is, Luke says, awe came upon them. And they experienced signs and wonders. Prayers were answered. Sometimes healings occurred. Sometimes miracles were experienced. And secondly, a spirit of generosity and love came upon them. They took care of one another. And those who were wealthy shared with those who were in need. And thirdly, God gave them favor with their neighbors. And day by day, more and more people were drawn to him and were drawn to them. And they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They were quite diverse ethnically, educationally, and socially. And eventually, word began to spread of these people. And the Roman emperor Hadrian, who built his wall across England, I wanted to find out just who these Christians were. And so he asked a philosopher named Aristides, who was a pagan, he wasn't a Christian, to, to find out about these Christians. And in his answer uh, to the emperor, 
among other things, Aristides said this. He said, well, these Christians, they, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers and sisters instead through the Spirit in God. No wonder people were drawn to them. Now, these are not qualities that a fine church staff and a brand new full-time children's minister or a vestry can organize. You can't just program love and sacrifice. You can't just decide that you're going to achieve such a reputation in Delray that people are drawn to Christ because of you. You can't plan all. You can't schedule miracles. You can't organize generosity and love. But these are things that happen when a body of people are wholeheartedly devoted to Christ and to one another and are filled with God's Spirit. And this, I believe, is a description of what God wants for us at the Falls Church Anglican and Christ the King and our other sister churches. Now, Pentecost was a one-time historic event, the initial coming of the Holy Spirit, not to be repeated, wind, fire, dozens of languages. These are unusual things. But the new life, the joy, the desire to come together, the answers to prayer, the supernatural works of God, the boldness, the love of heartfelt worship, the great ethnic variety of those who believe, the witness, the drawing in of people, con conversions of others, these are certainly not abnormal. This is what the kingdom of God is to look like. And Pentecost is a, it might be a momentary stunning event, but the life and witness of a spirit-filled church is to carry on and become stronger and more vital. And you've had moments, you've had this in different ways in the life of this church. You've had experiences that were touching and memorable and clearly were instigated by the Holy Spirit and not planned by you. You're already experiencing some of this, but God has more for us. He wants, he wants you to be a little outpost of heaven right here in Virginia. He wants you to know him deeply and to trust him and to live into all his promises. When the New Testament was new, the followers of Christ accepted the teachings as true. They believed the promises Jesus made. They made his commandments the norm for their behavior. This is what he wants for us. Can the church really be like this? Oh, yes. This can happen. It can happen now as it did then. But that's not the way most 21st century American, Americans live. It requires intentionality and persistence and tenacity. And some people believe sincerely in the Lord, but they treat him and matters of faith as though this were only one drawer in this big bureau of their life with many drawers consisting of many different things. And they open that one drawer when they feel religious or they decide to go to church, or they need God's help, and then they, they get that little taste of, of uh, faith, and then they close the drawer and they go on. 
That's not what being filled with the Holy Spirit is like. Let me tell you how to know that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you believe in your heart and your head that Jesus came from God to die for our sins and has been raised from the dead and you have committed yourself to follow and obey him, then the Holy Spirit has already been at work upon you and the Holy Spirit is living. He's alive in you. But I have to tell you, it's possible to have the Holy Spirit within us and with us, but not to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled is to give God unhindered access to every area of life, every drawer in the bureau of our life, every room in the house of our life, to depend completely upon Him. So I want to give you... uh, Let me give you a little example here. Here it is. I got it here. Okay, I've got a sponge here. And I've I've got a... uh, I've actually got a bucket of water. I thought you all might need me to do some cleaning up this morning. (laughs) So, this is an old example. But I love it. So the sponge represents you. The water is the living water of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he wanted a a spring of living water to be springing up and through us all the time through the Holy Spirit. So I can uh, come to God but actually still have the package on I can, I can come into the presence of God's Holy Spirit, but if I, if I guarded myself and closed myself off against him, I, I can actually be pushed down in water, but there's no water in the sponge. Now, if we take off those things that uh, separate us from God, if we come to him fully as we are and uh, we allow ourselves to be put into the water, then if we stay in the water long enough, the sponge is filled with water so much that it's overflowing. That's what the spirit-filled life looks like. But it's also possible to uh, come to God in faith in Christ and to open up our lives to faith in Him, but to still keep a tight hold on things in our life. So the sponge goes into water, but I'm holding it tightly. The sponge is in the water, and there's water in the sponge, but it's not filled. Is then dwelt with water, but it's not filled with water. A lot of folks in the church are like that. We've come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has come to be present with us and in us. But we are still holding on, holding control, holding back in some areas of life. We haven't turned them over to God. It's not easy. We want to be in control. We think, we think that 
we know best. And there's some parts of life where we're just afraid that if we turn those things over to God, it's just going to, it's not going to work. We're afraid to trust God with every area of our life. Don't be afraid. God knows what he's doing. I still struggle with this. It's not something you get worked out forever in life. I still struggle with things wanting to be in control, uh, holding things back from God. But I've learned that they don't go so well until I open them up and commit them completely to God. A sponge can be dipped in a water bucket and saturated with water, filled with water, but only if you completely release it is it filled. Many Christians truly believe and are attempting to be faithful to Christ. They have received the Spirit, yes, but there's still many areas of their life that they're holding tightly onto. They haven't released control of these areas of life to God and His care and control. And when we hold back, we can't be filled. We can't experience all that God wants of us. And my guess is that some of us here today are pretty dry in our relationship with God. And we need to come to Him and ask Him to come into our lives. Ask Christ to bring us into His family, forgive us, be at the center of our lives. Some of us might be damp, but not saturated. And perhaps you want to let go of some of the things that are weighing on you, and you know there are pockets in your life that you've not been willing or not been able to give to God. Certain goals, plans, relationships, secrets, sickness, uh, fears, hurts, insecurities, areas you need to give completely to God. He knows how to take care of them. Stop holding them so tightly to yourself. Release them. Give them to the Lord. You can trust Him with all these things. God wants to saturate you and saturate me and all of us with His life-giving, empowering presence. It's what I do. What I do, kids, every day early in the morning when I'm talking to God, I just say, here I am, Lord. Please fill me with your Spirit. Please come into every part of my life. I don't want to hold anything back from you. I want you to be in control of every area of my life. I give myself to you afresh. Fill me with your Spirit. I recommend that to you. When a group of people are filled with the Holy Spirit and are actively seeking to learn more and more of God and of His purposes through the study of Scripture and are alert to the needs of the people and the world around them and willing to step out in faith as servants and witnesses of Christ. When that happens, they're going to be used by God in remarkable ways and are going to have an impact on those around them. That's what happened in Acts. God willing, that's what's happening here too. Amen? Amen? Let me, can I pray for your church? Please. Father, I thank you for what you're doing here in this church. We thank you for Christ our King and the Holy Spirit. Help us now, Lord, not to hold back from you, 
but to give ourselves to you. Our thoughts, our decisions, our relationships, our future, our failures, and our past. Take control of all these things, we pray, that we might be fully yours. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.